0: All right, so what are we talking about? We're talking about estimation. So do all your guys' projects finish on time? No. No. Cool story, bro. <laughs> so why do you think that is? And is that related to estimation? So what what is estimation, I guess, first? So in prep for the show, I did a few hours of prep. Uh, and that was buying and reading the book, uh, The Art of Software Estimation. Uh, And it's really old, and it's kind of interesting because it's very kind of waterfall-oriented, which Mm -hmm. is terrible. But they make the great point that we kind of conflate a lot of concepts when we talk about estimation. And normally when we give an estimate, we kind of end up turning that into a commitment, and they did a good job at parsing the language and making sure an estimate is distinct from a commitment, which is distinct from planning, which are all separate activities. I guess the biggest thing that I ran into
1: when I was researching this was what is the between estimation and planning?
0: I kind of came to the conclusion that estimation is a tool to use for planning. Right. Well, what were the definitions that you were finding? So an estimate is just how long is something going to take and that can be separate from planning. Like you're not necessarily you can use the information you get from those estimates to have a rough plan of of when you're going to launch something. And that from that plan you can make a commitment to say we're going to launch such and such software by such and such date.
1: So what are the different styles of planning and estimation that teams that you've been on have used? And I guess what what which
0: ones have we found worked better than others? Well, I think we always end up in projects with people pulling us towards waterfall, which ends in tragedy. And waterfall is the practice where you do all the estimation up front and normally, kind of skew your estimates to fit into the preconceived plan. The deadline. <laughs> the deadline. Uh, and you know, estimating up front is usually a terrible idea because there's no time in the project when you know least than now. And doing a year's worth of estimates, uh, you'll most of your assumptions will have been wrong. So you do all those estimates, you work for a year, and then you turn out that everything was off by uh, like an order of magnitude and the project just never ends
2: is is everything off by one len yes <laughs> is it is it <laughs>
3: but when your product I mean, change in a year's time like why would you estimate that far
2: because people have roadmaps driven and all <laughs> glory to the roadmap people are people are in businesses that don't understand software or how software is built
0: yeah managers need something to manage yeah yeah, and we're specifically talking
1: about like software development, like writing code to fulfill a feature request from a user product owner. Not um, I have seen waterfall kind of makes more sense in a in a way of, like I'm going to buy this enterprise product and there's going to be an integration phase, and that phase will take you know three months because we've done this to twenty other clients and on average it takes three months. But when you're building software, you're building something that that literally nobody's ever built before and it's impossible to know how long it's gonna take so do you think that like software shops should de-
3: like find a product that they're good at and then they would stop screwing up estimates no
1: <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be a software shop
2: well I mean that's a totally different thing of whether um, consultants productize their services But it is. You can kind of do that. And people kind of do. Like, people kind of know how long it is. Like, agencies say, well, if I'm building you a WordPress website, I generally know how long that's going to take. If it fits these very strict bullet points. Right. So those are the caveats. And that's the trade-off that you get for a sure estimate. And that's why, you know, for those kind of projects, you can usually do, like, a flat price.
1: Yeah, and, like, looking back, like, the last year of products I've been on... Um, none of them are pl- applicable to any other client that I can think of.
0: Like, they they only live and die in that, in that organization. And that's generally what makes estimating software hard, because we're building things that never existed before. Right. If we built something twice, we would hopefully find a way to reuse it. So I guess,
1: what are the different ways in which we estimate? Like, I'm most familiar with um, points and user stories. Um, the idea being that on a regular basis every week or two week or three week sprint um, the team takes a bunch of user stories that have been written by a product owner and the team together and we estimate them not based on time but based on complexity so we say this is fairly easy, it's a one, this is very complex and we'll take the entire team working on it, maybe it needs to be broken up smaller but for now it's a
0: I don't know, 8, 13, 50, whatever. And why do you make that distinction from points to hours? Well, because like we said earlier, like you don't know how long
1: something's going to take in literal hours. Um, so the idea being that like, if you estimate with points, you eventually, after a few weeks, you have an average of, oh, this team can complete, you know, I don't know, 100 points a week. And then you know that you have... 400 points in the backlog. So you estimate that, or I guess you can plan, that those 400 points will probably be done in four weeks.
3: But someone is going to make that correlation, right? They're going to say, well, if you can do that in a week, <clears throat> then let's stuff all these points in there. And it's a week's worth of work, or like, yeah, somebody uh, down the line is going to make an hour.
1: Like, yeah, I think I think that like, your team's velocity is useless outside of the context of like the team for, for estimating like how long a feature is out uh, on the roadmap. Like, like I've heard organizations try to use velocity as like a measure of team health, which is ridiculous because the velocity is only relative to previous, uh, or I should say like points are only relative to other people in that team. Like you could have two identical teams in separate rooms estimating stories, and one would maybe estimate twice as high as the other one for each story point. Or, I guess, user
0: story. Maybe that uh, could be, like, a manager uh, life hack, just to give all your points, like, uh, multiples of 10. And well, yeah, it seems super most, productive.
1: Well, the most important thing is, like, you, you don't tell people they're being measured by by velocity or story points, because then you have open opportunity to game the system. Then people will naturally just estimate higher to protect themselves. So um,
2: with story yeah. points, I, I do think that they approximate to maybe a developer day.
0: Well, it depends on what your scale is. But yeah, like Trevon like, was saying, everyone's going to kind of in the back of their mind, start making that math. Like, oh, well, depending yeah, on that, what it is. Yeah, but I
2: think that people already do lend because I think people aren't dumb. I I feel aggressively strong about (laughs) planning and estimation. Um, And because, okay, here's a logical fallacy that I believe that I see is that if story points have no representation in the real world and there's some kind of abstract measure of something, then what purpose do they serve?
1: Well, like I said earlier, to estimate how how far out a specific story is that you do things in order. So, like oh, so then
2: backlog. it approximates roughly to time.
0: Not so much. It's your, your velocity per week. Part of the, the hole you can get into if you're correlating points to hours is having managers think you can get more work done by adding more hours, which you know is not necessarily the case for a variety of reasons. And like Justin was saying. The points are just for planning. So after three iterations, you'll know, Oh, our velocity is 70. And you can sit down with a customer and let them like visually see, you know, and and tools like Pivotal will do this that, Oh, if you want this feature done this iteration, this means we are not doing something else. And we can't, we can't change that by adding time. These are, these are points. This is our velocity.
2: So uh, with that. Is the whole point system just a made-up thing to convince people who don't understand things to leave you alone? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I, that's the I thing mean, is. I- that's what I'm getting at. And so, like, so, so, you know, we're talking about story points. I, I actually prefer if you have to have a some kind of planning system. I prefer kind of a a a pull model like a kanban, where things are done when they are done because that's when they're done. It's not, mm-hmm. but it's like a very hard concept for people to understand. Like, yeah, I, I don't understand why it's so hard. I really don't get it.
0: I love the lean systems, but part of that could be having a, a product owner who's can be hands-off enough and understand things are going to get done when they get done, and we can't go any faster than that. But if you need some, some set of planning and, and some way to, to see what features you can do in a week, I think doing weekly sprints and points are are the way to go.
1: Yeah, and you can use um, points along with the Kanban board and have some rough estimate of, okay, in the past we've gotten this many points done per per sprint. So this one feature that's way down the backlog will probably be done in three
0: weeks. I will say one advantage, I think, of the weekly sprint too is just Parkinson's law. So Parkinson's law is that any task will inflate to the time allotted for it. Uh, And with the sprint, you are kind of are kind of are trying to make this commitment that says we will get all these things done in this week. And it's a little bit of a game and it's a little bit of a a challenge. And it's can lead to a little bit of a like literal sprint uh, when you're trying to get things done the night before the sprint ends. And I think that's a good thing to like have just weekly pressure to uh, kick it into high gear and get features out the door. I don't I don't love the commitment model like we're gonna get the, these things done in
1: this amount of time because I feel like you're still it's a smaller scale but you're still at the same issue of like estimating how much how many things you get done in this week. And, you know, people have lies people are sick some days people we have holidays like stuff happens like I don't I don't I don't wanna ever feel rushed on a Thursday night to get something done for Friday. That's a great way to make terrible decisions.
0: Um, well, if you make a terrible decision, you'll have technical debt, and you'll pay that in future iterations.
2: So, did you did you guys read that? So, read technical debt. Did you all read that article? I'm sorry, I probably didn't put it in the chat or on the board, but that was technical debt 101 on Medium. I did. Oh, cause, cause Justin posted it. Cool story. <laughs> um, good job, Justin. Uh, so so basically, the the thing in that it, I really You know, it's one of those things where I feel like on blog posts, you know, let's be honest, we don't always read to the end. Uh, But so that one is I felt like the end was really like the fantastic part because kind of the the point of the article uh, at the very end is that people call things technical debt that are just bad code and just a disrespect for quality. And I really, really liked that point that. If someone writes something that's completely dumb, it is not technical debt. It is just bad code. The technical debt is something different than. Well, I don't think
3: anyone intentionally writes something dumb. They usually. I write.
2: think they do, Javon. <laughs> I, th- I think your, your perspective is perhaps Maybe too I positive. I awesome think people, people. I, from the things that I've reviewed of people in the past, sometimes I have had to say, like, this is dumb, and you know it's dumb. So, and, you know, I'm, no, I'm actually, I'm actually not, I'm a good code reviewer, you guys. I'm not that, I'm not mean, but I mean, I'll tell you like it is. So wait, I'm in, so. I'm intri- I mean,
0: I'm intrigued by this. Uh, I didn't, didn't read that article. It's in my pocket, but I don't understand how yeah, bad, bad code. Yeah, I totally put it
2: in the show notes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I, don't, um, I don't understand how bad code is not technical debt because it still requires the same remedy, right? It's going to, it's going to make you slower when you're in that code and, you're going to need to stop and refactor it.
1: If I'm recalling correctly from the article, it was like a week ago that I read it, um, the difference is that technical debt is a conscious trade-off for quality uh, and time. Yes. But bad and code and is just... You know that you
2: have to repay it.
1: Bad code is just, I don't care about this. I'm just going to write it this way.
2: Yeah, because I have some evil looming deadline for no reason. So...
0: So instead of like taking out a loan, it's more just like throwing your money away in Vegas.
2: Yes. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, because that's actually one of the, the points in the article is that the author takes issue with the these analogies. is saying like, actually, these analogies don't effectively communicate what we actually mean. It's also,
1: it's also a great picture in this uh, article that has Dr. Evil and it says, we'll ask for estimates and then treat them as and deadlines. And then make them deadlines. <laughs>
2: um, but yeah, because I think, you know, if people actually did take the loan analogy real, like, like you kind of mentioned, Len, that when you take out a loan, you aren't just like, like, so what if you give me $10,000 and whatever? <laughs> like, no, when you take out a loan, you have a repayment plan and there's like, you know, it comes at a price. Like, you know how much. You do it, and and you know to take the analogy further. Further, if you don't pay that, then you default, and shit gets real. Uh, no, I do. So. I
0: I don't know. I I love the the loan analogy because I mean people understand analogies generally, and even if they're not perfect, you know it's hard for people not in software to understand what makes software hard and what what can make working in a bad code base hard. But I also I also often use the analogy of technical debt that has no interest. Like if you write some crappy code, uh, you do like something intentionally hacky, but it's in something that's isolated, something you don't have to touch. There's next to no interest on that. And I wouldn't stop and, and spend two days to refactor it necessarily, as opposed to, you know, code that's in something that's heavily trafficked that slows everyone down constantly. There's high interest on that technical debt. It's ironic that you mentioned the
1: analogies because this article opens with the problem of analogies and then says that they're necessary and then uses a few of them.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it offers some alternatives to people who apparently aren't aware of how financial systems work. So what if we, you know, I I eventually want to get to the the rogue um, topic, so I'll try it now and we can always, we can drop it and come back to it later. But what if we just didn't estimate, you guys, what if we just did things and then when they were done, they were done?
1: Yeah, I feel like, you know, the more process a team has, it just kind of comes from a lack of trust from um, management or product owner. I think if you start with people that are, you know, excited to work on your product and, which isn't always the case, but, um, or or more, maybe more importantly for software developers that are working on interesting technical problems that keep them interested um, and people that just you know, love working together. I think that you don't really need a lot of, you know, structure around that. I think that you could just have, you know, um, good, a good product come out of that and, and quality, uh, code. Obviously you still need like a list of like what features you need, but you know, so,
3: so. yeah
2: and it's you know and people a group of people working toward a common goal I, I just I've had some really fantastic projects in the past where we we didn't we didn't really we didn't first of all so estimation this is another topic I did want to make sure we touch on that the time that people spend in estimation and planning um I, I read a bunch of uh is it okay if we share Ryan's pinboard link the link that you. Share, Jervon, can we put that in the show notes? Oh. But that was, that was oh. a lot of great links. Um, so I read a good number of them. Um, uh, but anyway, so a planning meeting or an estimation meeting, when you put like even, even five engineers in a room, much less, you know, eight engineers and an end jobs person and et cetera, you put them in a room for an hour. That's a that is an extremely expensive hour, man. Like, and if one of those people is a consultant, like <laughs> that's a really expensive hour that those people aren't actually doing anything.
0: So I think it totally depends on the product, whether or not you can get away with not estimating. I mean, if you have a company paying for an iPhone app, you can't just be like, eh, I don't know, six months, a year, Wait, they'll be done when it's done. Just, just hold on to your pants.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, client work, because you also have to... You know, you have to communicate things with your business so that they can charge the appropriate amount for your client work so that, was so that you don't something. end up in bad, bad news.
3: So software isn't only about writing software, right? It's about business. So are we doing a bad job explaining how software works to business people or are we just refusing to play the game of business? Because business people need something and they need to relay something to their stakeholders. So,
1: so business people, they need... They need value for, you know, customers to charge them for it, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think that's what, you know, at least like agile um, planning tries to do is deliver the most value as soon as possible. And if you're doing that, like why, maybe there's like a decision to be made if, if the product's even worth it, if it's going to take a long time. But I think if you can deliver value uh, in a short amount of time, then keep incrementing on that value. Um, it doesn't matter so much, you know, how long feature X is going to be out for, you know, in months, I'd much rather have, you know, quality working software, uh, as soon as possible and give that to my customers and then be able to deliver them more value as time goes on.
3: So, I, I totally agree with you but how, I don't know. I feel like somebody with unlimited budget would be okay with that, but somebody spending, you know.
2: Well, yeah. the
1: thing with an estimate is it's an estimate, it's not guaranteed. Like, mm-hmm. like if you have a plumber. Except for here, the Dr.
2: Evil thing. Like, if Except you have them as deadlines.
1: Like, if you have a plumber come to your house and your, like, your toilet's broken, they're like, oh, it'd be like an hour and I'm like charging $100 an hour. And you're like, okay, that's fine. And then they get there and they're like, hey, all of your pipes are rotted. I need to replace all of them. Twenty-two thousand dollars. Like he didn't know ahead of time, or she didn't know ahead of time that your pipes are going to be rotted. But you still don't have a choice on whether or not like that needs to be done. And it's not, the plumber's not at fault for not knowing that. That's a bit of an extreme case. Two thousand dollars versus a hundred, but you know estimates are estimates because we don't know yet. So you can give a a time frame to a customer and say this is our estimate for how long this is going to take. It could take shorter. It could take longer. And I think I think the key to that is at any point we hope you know af- after initial minimal viable product that we can give you, you know, at any point you can say, "Hey, the value that I'm getting out of this is not worth what I'm paying anymore." Like because if you're working on the most valuable thing next, eventually the value you're delivering will be lower and lower as time goes on. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, it's usually time to switch to another project.
0: And I I love the minimal viable product model, but it doesn't always work. There's some products that just need a lot of features to get out the door. And there are things like iPhone apps where if you ship an app that's not great, you're going to get bad reviews and the whole project's just kind of screwed. So in those cases, you kind of do need to work a long time before you ship software
2: well and that was also true in like the age of box software if you can only release your box software once a year then you work in a very different way than the people on the web who we can release like at our own whim
0: yeah i think maybe part of the reason why i'm such an advocate for agile planning is i think the project i was happiest on we did agile planning and every sprint was kind of like a game, and it felt great to uh, you know succeed every week, or not succeed and do, and do the retrospective <laughs> and think about what, what we could have done better. But it basically kind of you know tying into uh, developer happiness, it kind of you know made every every week like inspiring in and a game. And I think you can get that if you have a product that's out the door, and it's great to see you know your feature shipped to the website. But if you don't have that yet, I think you need like some type of interim marker of success. Was the team large? It was about 12 or 13 people. And they all have that kind of
1: competitive mindset of like, not competitive against each other, but like there's a game and we're
0: playing it each week. Kind of, yeah. When we succeeded, we'd, we'd like go out for beers after and it was, it was good.
1: Yeah, I don't, that doesn't sit right with me for some reason.
0: I'm not sure why. But the one thing we did too that I think made our estimates better, uh and we we didn't spend a lot of time as a whole thinking of it, but we did get in one big meeting and we would play the planning game. We'd play uh play planning poker, which is hard to say three times fast. But we'd look at the card and everyone would have uh, you know, the story points in their hand, like the possible story points. So one, three, five, eight, thirteen, and everyone would just take their vote and show it at the same time. And sometimes, you know, most of the room would be fives and somebody would be a two. And if you were one of those outliers, you'd have to, you'd have to justify your vote. So why do you think this was a two or why do you think it was a 13? And a lot of times you would find someone had uh, a, a reason that was valid. So they'd either knew, you know, some dragon that was in the code, they would know some feature that would have to be implemented that, everyone else forgot about, or they would just know some library or trick to make it easier. So a lot of times that just flushed out the most reliable estimates Because part of what makes estimating so hard is that we don't know what we don't know. And we usually are wrong because we overlook something.
1: Yeah. I guess the most important thing for me is that like different things work for different teams and different team sizes. Like, you probably don't need a planning meeting with two or three people. Um, You definitely need one with eight to 12 people on a team. Uh, I think that sprint length can also be affected by team size and maybe even the tools they're using uh, as far as, like, programming languages and other things.
2: I mean, was eight to 12 people, was that cross-functional? Did you have designers on there?
0: Uh, Yeah, there's two designers, QA person, project manager.
2: Oh, okay. Because otherwise, it sounds like a ridiculously large team. I've been on teams of eight 10, en- ten engineers.
1: I've been on teams of eight engineers, and it's a little. I think it's like kind of like the limit.
2: That's way too big to me.
1: Yeah, at that point, you should probably break up the product to smaller pieces.
2: Yeah, or or a a focus area of the product. Yeah. So and say like what what. What piece of the product should we focus on? What experience should we be making better? And what will we own?
1: I so. love that on just the four of us, there's so uh, differing views on, you know, how to estimate and what style to use, like Kanban or like Pivotal style or something else. And even like sprint length, is seems pretty diverse. Like Glenn, you mentioned, you know, one week sprints, but I've, I've heard a lot of argument for two week because the overhead of, even like an hour or two of meetings each week is too long. I've also heard people love uh, beginning and ending sprints on you know Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday because then you're not like rushing over the weekend, and people are usually out on Monday or Friday.
0: Yeah, don't ending sprints on Friday is terrible. Yeah. At the same time, though, it's nice to be done
1: a sprint and not have to think about it over the weekend.
0: And I also have issue with. The term sprint in people that do like three or four week sprints. Like you don't you don't quite understand what a sprint means. You can't sprint a marathon. You can try, but good luck with that, you're not gonna succeed.
3: So what are some tools that you guys use to to your estimation? Or I guess plot your estimation. Do you mean like project management tools or? Yeah. So like what where do you put your points and do you so write your stories a certain way?
1: I have used Pivotal in the past. I haven't recently. Um, I really liked it. It has built-in support for points and automatically changes your um, like weekly. It, it Basically, you, you assign a backlog in order, and you assign points to each story, and it automatically determines how many weeks out something is. And as you change points and move stories around, everything in the future weeks automatically changes. Then there are more, I guess, structured uh, programs like Rally or Jira, where it requires intervention to make a commitment for each iteration.
3: Could you, could you explain that when you
1: say intervention? So, as I said, like Pivotal automatically moves things into you know future time blocks based okay. on what's in the current one um, and the team's velocity, but if you use a another tool that has, I guess, explicit uh, sprints or iterations, it requires somebody to go in and say these are the stories for this iteration, and this is what we're committing to. And then you have the, I guess, the possibility of like a burn down chart. And I don't, I don't love the idea of, you know, a sprint commitment. Um, I, I just feel like. People will either rush to get things done or people will not pick up things out of future sprints because this sprint's done. So why, why why, burden myself? I feel like you can get a nice pace if you just have
0: a constant flow of stories. Well, I think part of it is Parkinson's Law, which is a huge ordeal. I mean, if you have a month to do something, generally that thing's going to take a month. Uh, if, like, if you had all week to like, clean your house before your in-laws visited... You're generally not going to do anything the whole week. But if you had an hour and you knew they were coming right now, you would get most of it done. It would be pretty great. And I think it, it kind of enforces the Parkinson's law. And part
1: of, part of it. Wouldn't that uh, happen at any scale, though? Like, even if you were on a week sprint, wouldn't that just group stories into Wednesday, Thursday?
0: Yeah, but generally you should have stories that aren't a week long. They're like estimated at being three days, and it helps avoid rabbit holes. Uh, it helps, you know, especially it depends on developer types too, but it it helps avoid developers taking a story and doing their own feature creep on it and spending two or three weeks on the same story. And, you know, getting back to estimation, uh, when a manager asks that developer where they are, they always think they're 80% done because everyone always thinks they're 80% or 90% <laughs> done with everything, always, like all software's 90% done. So I think it avoids those kind of traps too.
1: What I'm saying is if you have 10 things to do and you have five days to do it, wouldn't Parkinson's law also apply to that where you would not do two things a day? You would do more things towards the end of the week?
0: Well, no, you you need to know you you need those things to get done. And you know that there's a, well, depending on what what you qualify as done, uh, you need to hand those off to QA too as a developer in order for those to be completed for the sprint. So, yeah, in my experience, the one place I think we did it well. It did kind of burden QA on that last day. Lots of stories came through on the last day. But, you know, like I said, it was a little bit of a a game, too, and people were inspired to do it. So I
2: I also, like, just want to throw it out there that not everyone is a procrastinator. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually not. Uh, So uh, everyone has procrastination tendencies, but... uh, but not everyone waits until the last minute to do things.
0: I'm not even saying wait to the last minute. I'm just saying any story can can be implemented in a lot of different ways, and you can you know back to the code quality, how much engineering should go in it. And I guess in, in planning poker, you kind of make a commitment that this is the level of of work we're putting into this feature. And I just appreciate that. So, what do you guys think about about uh, flat rates for projects?
1: No.
2: I like flat rates.
0: We're talking about consulting specifically. Well, that's a form of estimate too, right? You could say, I'm going to build you X product for X dollars.
2: I like flat rates. Um, I mean, when I've done consulting, I've been surprised at how much people, how much clients prefer flat rates. Uh, So, honestly, you can give them a number that's a lot more to you, the consultant's advantage, because then whenever you're done with it, so because it's flat, when if you finished early, you made more money per hour.
3: But that happens to you. That
2: <laughs> yes, because um, maybe I'm great at estimation, you guys. Well, so so uh, that is like one. Doing the scenario next episode by myself.
1: Where it works out well for the consultant, but like I feel like a flat rate, somebody always loses. Like if if you're winning as a consultant and as far as you know how much you're charging, if you get it done early, then the client is losing more money than they er, could have. They no. aren't losing.
2: They're paying a flat rate for a product that they got. Er, disagree.
1: And if the product takes too long, then you
2: now they are not making money. you're not going lose because you should have done a better job estimating, yo. Like, <laughs> and you deserve to lose because <laughs> you should have estimated better. Or or you are not a good scope, scope creep police. That also happens. Yeah. You got to be a good scope creep police <laughs> if you do flat rate.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm flat rate curious now. I I got burned my first like freelance project ever like 13 years ago. I was just so new and naive, and uh, I we did everything wrong. And I ended up working for like way less than minimum wage. It was like a nine month ordeal, and swore I would never do flat rate again.
2: That's awful. But having
0: having moved from .NET to Rails, I I, I could see the benefits of flat rate. I'm like. Why why does Rails help me as a consultant? I can I can build something in Rails in half a day that would have taken me like 3 weeks in .net literally. You know, all these gems are well, we just throw it get so much I would also free. say
2: that it, using a framework makes it more of a repeatable process because some of your process is repeatable. Like we were talking about that earlier. So like the what about like a WordPress website? And I think that's somewhat true of other frameworks. That it takes you know about X long to set up a base, you know, framework because it's doing a a lot of the lifting for you, and then you can spend your time writing the business logic that actually matters.
1: I'd still contend that somebody has to lose in that scenario.
0: That means somebody has to win. <laughs> it seems well, like a gamble.
2: And so, so an alternative to that. So, how do you feel about like I have some friends who who are Huge proponents of the weekly rate because for them that's like kind of the happy medium of flat and uh, and a rate.
1: Yeah, I actually work for a weekly rate right now, and I like it because you know you get my attention for the entire week, and I don't overwork myself and try to build more hours than I have to. I think it's a good. Uh, I think it's good. I know a couple. I like that because you
2: can't you can't sneak more weeks into the year, <laughs> like. No. I, I mean I've seen people ask consultants, hey, can you sneak in more hours, you know, close to the end of the quarter and things like that? And that, that really rubs me the wrong way when I see that.
1: And I think a lot of consultancies have moved to weekly rates. I know um Promptworks does or prefers it, um, Thoughtbot. I think relevance might as well. Or I guess or Cognitech now.
3: How about do not exceeds? So like you estimate and you say well.
1: Well, so that's just an hourly. That's just a weekly or hourly rate with a you know parachute client. Like I'm not going to. It's it's fixed
0: rate, but the consultant always loses. Basically. Yeah, I love the the flat weekly rate because when I bill hourly, like I'll be walking home, I'll be thinking about the client's prod like problem, and I'll I'll just stop myself. I'm like, why am I thinking about this? I'm not billing right now.
1: (laughs) We have a few minutes left. I think that one topic we should probably touch on is. You know we talked about like different ways we can estimate and you know track progress and things um, and how we tell clients what what they're gonna get and when um, how how do you know if it's working like if you're in a organization um, that basically says like hey do whatever you want as long as it works like how do you how do you compare methodologies do you, do you develop do you Measure developer happiness. Do you measure client happiness? Do you measure? I, I was
2: I was going to say I feel like Jervon should bring up his his client or his, his developer happiness thing. Or is that you who, who likes that a whole lot? Does everyone like it a whole lot?
1: I hope everybody likes it a whole lot.
2: I mean, I do like it, but I also think it's a little patronizing. Uh, but yeah. So I've,
1: I've worked
3: at a, a place where kind of I just had my free reign. And once things got done in a timely manner, and the product was getting shipped, or the features were getting shipped, it worked out. But that was just a one-on-one thing. So I guess to answer your question is like, to measure it, it would be if both people are are happy and just the the milestones are getting hit, or whatever the goals of the product are. So there's no rush, no deadlines.
2: But I would also say, like, how do you know that it's not working? So what what is a symptom? No, but I mean, really, like, what's what are the symptoms that is going wrong?
1: Yeah. If uh, well, first of all, if the client and developers are both not happy, uh, if the software has a lot of bugs, if it's over, um, if it's past its deadline, if you're there every day
3: after over, over budget,
0: yeah. If you're if you're not able to keep a sustainable pace. Well that's what I like about weekly sprints with those commitments too, is you know if you're meeting them or not, and then you can do the short retro and have everyone's opinion. Why didn't this work? And then you can make little micro adjustments and get feedback every week. Get yeah, quick I think retros tips. are really important. And getting that quick feedback and not realize, oh, we were doing everything wrong for a month.
2: <laughs> I also think an interesting point about I mean, Len, your your problem with the the three weeks slash practically a month long sprint is is that just like life stuff happens within a month? Like just people people have a lot of things change. And so the only way that like a, a long sprint like that can work is if absolutely nothing changes and like no one gets sick, no one breaks our arm, like and this just this stuff just happens.
0: Right. And I don't even understand, I mean, if, if part of doing sprints is under, understanding your velocity and you do average of three sprints, you know, after three months, you probably have a different composition of your team. So are we ready for picks? Or do we have anything else to add on uh, estimation?
2: I think the answer to this episode is that we have no answer for estimation, <laughs> just like everyone else.
1: Yeah, I think the most important thing is that everybody is different. Every team's different. Organizations and size of team and the individuals on the team. Um, Find what works for your team. Yeah, but don't use it as a cop out. Like, oh, this works for us, because that's bullshit a lot of the time.
2: (laughs) So I think so. My pick would be I really like that technical debt article, Uh, and then also in when I was so I was actually searching for a joke because I wanted to use I. one of my buddies a few while a uh, while ago had a, a funny tweet like this is like a while ago so I'm impressed I remember it and it was as an engineer I want to stop writing stupid user stories uh, and I wanted to use that as my pick but fortunately or unfortunately I didn't find it and instead I found the the care and feeding or software engineers or why engineers are grumpy um, and I think that it has a a good a good bearing on our topic today. And so I'd recommend that oldie but goodie.
0: Awesome. Justin, do you have a pick? Yeah, uh, I'm going
1: to pick another podcast. Uh, it's called This Agile Life. And uh, it's really good. You should go listen to it. Cool. Jervon, do you have a pick?
3: Yeah. Um, I have two picks. First one is a project called Project Monitor from Pivotal Labs. especially a dashboard uh, that connects to different CIs. And it shows your uh, project status. We're setting up a bunch of dashboards at work. And that's one that we're using. Um, And then my second pick is uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff's Summertime series. You can find it at summertime.fm. I really like DJ Jazzy Jeff,
0: so check it out. So Pam and Justin are going to hate my pick because it's just one big analogy. There was a thread on Quora uh, about what make software estimation so bad. And uh, the best reply ever was this guy just writes a story, this fictional story about trying to estimate someone's walk uh, along the coast of California and just everything they didn't predict and how their, their, their estimate was off like an order of magnitude. And it's pretty great. I've actually read that. It's pretty good. Yeah. So I guess that wraps it up. Show notes are at turing.cool slash 10. And follow us on Twitter at Turing Cool.
1: Oh, my God, we're 10, yeah. <laughs> ten, ten years old.
0: And uh, i talk to you guys next week. See you. See
1: you. Pam, LibertyJS looks really cool.
2: Yeah, you should buy a ticket and attend and do I, everything.
1: I'm going to be uh, at the shore that weekend on vacation. But I told uh, Ashton, my favorite JavaScript programmer, to definitely go.
2: Good.
3: I oh, am yeah, Pam. I was trying to get a free ticket from you.
2: Nah, you, you can afford
1: fifteen dollars.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I want to be a helper.
3: <laughs> How's the planning for that, Pam?
2: Um, it's going well. Um, I mean we're so. We've got so what Liberty JS is doing is we have kind of we ended up calling it a conference because we needed to call it something, uh, but really it is a day of festivities for JavaScript developers, and so we start with workshops in the morning, um, and really uh, most of them are self-driven. So a uh, Node School is kind of like a, a one of those self-paced sort of workshops to learn Node. So you'll go through a curriculum that's the same as other Node schools, and learn how to use Node. And then Intro to JS will be people will be using, um, kind of just working through the Khan Academy programming stuff together because actually the Intro to Programming on Khan Academy is written in Processing JS. So when people learn to program through Khan Academy, they're actually learning some JavaScript. And then the third workshop is Angular JS, and so their their style is going to be pretty neat because I believe they're going to have a bunch of short speakers going through kind of like the major hot topics of Angular and walking through people, uh, walking people through learning those concepts. So that's going to be pretty neat. And that's just the morning. And then the afternoon is open spaces, so like bar camp style, and open hack. So
0: unconference, open hack.
2: Yeah. So so I added the the open spaces. Because I, I know that some people are kind of confused by the open hack, and then the open hack kind of works at the same time since a lot of people are confused by open spaces. So, um, so it should be a lot of fun. Uh people from Code for Philly are going to come to work on their projects. Some of the Girl Developed Open Source fellows are going to come and work on their projects. And so it's a good opportunity for people to learn about open source projects that are out there and also... Um, we wanted to provide a space for people to use the skills they learn at the workshops in the morning, because a lot of people, you know, I, I know we've talked about this, about, like, people doing things in their side time, and so, like, there's a good number of people who don't get to, to show off the work that they do at their day job, and so providing them a space where they can explicitly, like, say, like, hey, now you went to a Node workshop or an Angular workshop, now go build something with Node or Angular uh, will be pretty neat. And, then, of course, festivities at the end of the day. Sounds really cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I know, it's tricky in the summer just because it's, you know, you have so many people traveling. But I just had this kind of dream of doing a summer event because I wanted to have a large festivity.
1: How many people are you expecting or um, limiting to?
2: So we're, we're starting at 100. Uh, but, you know, it's, a, it's an impact hub in uh, uh, Old Kensington. So, we have a lot of space, actually, um, but we want to, you know, for the workshops, we're limited to how many uh, assistants we can have. So, because we want to have a good ratio of people helping people out, but that, other than that, I mean, it could get big, but just because it's the summer, I don't, I think it'll be a nice, comfortable size that people are going to really like.
1: What's the website for that?
2: That is libertyjs.com, nice. Justin. Thanks for asking. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> what if you had called it a day of
1: liberty? Yeah.
2: A day of liberty. Um, it doesn't have
1: JavaScript in the name.
2: Yeah. No, all JavaScript things oh. have to end in JS, Jervon. It's actually a rule. Um, you pick a noun, and then you put JS at the end, and then it's a JavaScript thing.
3: Somebody's squatting on the liberty JS Twitter handle. Oh, that would be me. There's, like, Chinese characters,
2: though. Oh, then it's not me. (laughs) I thought I did that. Um, But we we decided not to do a Twitter just because it's extra work. Mm -hmm. Nice. Dang it, you're right. It is someone else. Oh, well.
0: I love when you have so many domains. You're not even sure what domains you have.
2: Yeah, I do that for for Twitter accounts sometimes. I used to. I I don't do it anymore. I got, I got username scooped on Instagram. I like re got into Instagram like six months ago and I, for whatever dumb reason, when I first joined Instagram, I chose some stupid old username that I had that had nothing to do with like Pam Selly or Pamasaur or any of my brands online. And every single one of my online identities is taken on Instagram. Literally like, Pam Selly and Pamela uh, I have Pamela Selly now luckily, but Pam Selly is taken. And it was what hurts the most, len is that these people aren't even named Pam. Oh no. <laughs> so Enna Morconi who's sitting on my name on Instagram. Not cool.
0: So part of the reason I'm all still ignu all over the internet is because no one ever wants that. <laughs> the only problem I run into is when some websites want more than four characters for username. Uh, if you notice, my Skype name is actually super obnoxious, and I was really pissed because Skype wouldn't let us have four-letter usernames. So my I shouldn't say my Skype username on the show, but I'll, I'll dare that we get... get I get it? dozens of, sp- of spam, so I, I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> my Skype yeah, username. Yeah. My Skype username is ignu... Dot, dot, dot. Uh, And dots were valid characters. But now it's super obnoxious because I have to tell people my usernames. and not not an ellipsis, just dot, dot, dot. So there's that.
2: Because ellipsis is its own character. Yeah. One of the most commonly wrong things on the internet.
1: I would have assumed that you were just telling me a joke
0: with a dot, dot, dot. (laughs) You're
1: waiting for the punchline.
0: Yeah. That's That's not a problem with that username.